Blog Talk Radio. This week on Backroom Politics, now that the midterm elections are over, what could possibly go wrong? Well, except for an immigration fight that could shut down government, an Affordable Care Act fight that could possibly shut down the government, and the GOP is already threatening government shutdown, and the Dems are already blaming the GOP for shutting down the government. It's deja vu all over again. That and tell me a story this week on Backroom Politics. Live from Shelley's Back Room, 1331 F Street in the heart of our nation's capital, Washington, D.C., this is Backroom Politics. To join the discussion, you can call toll-free 1-877-662-3713. And now, the moderator of Backroom Politics, Justin Russell. Good afternoon out there in Radio Land. It is Tuesday, which means it's time for the best political talk show you've never heard of. It's Backroom Politics Live from Shelley's Backroom, 1331 F Street in the heart of our nation's capital, Washington, D.C. Joining me as they do every Tuesday to my left, he is the former floor chief for then Congressman Gerald R. Ford. He is the former uh, vice president of government affairs for the National Broadcasting Corporation. He is Bob Hines. Hello, Bob. Hello, Justin. Good to be here. And to my 11 o'clock across the table, he is the former executive director of the Democratic Party of the Great State of Maryland, former 20th Century Fox lobbyist, Carl Tuvin. Hello, Justin. And to my 12 o'clock, she is the former general counsel to the Homeland Security Committee under Benny Thompson, former Obama appointee and newly elected area neighborhood commissioner here in the District of Columbia. She is Denise Krepp. Hello, Commissioner. Congratulations. Congratulations. And uh, to my one o'clock, she she is longtime youth GOP advocate and GOP insider and just the latest addition to our show. She's Rebecca Coffin. Hello, Becca. Hi, Justin. And to my two o'clock, he is the longtime Senate staffer, former Undersecretary of Commerce, who served under last count four presidents. He's a very handsome and distinguished fellow from the Stimson Center. He is Alan Moore. Hello, Alan. Hello, Justin. Hello, Winter. And to my right, ironically, he is bar certified attorney here in the District of Columbia and the great state of New York. He is longtime Washington political operative for the Democrats, Dan Lipner Esquire. Hello, Daniel. Hey, Justin. Nothing but blue impeachment skies here. Oh, it's all over the place. It is. It is a cold day here in the nation's capital. The hangover has finally worn off. For the GOP, the headbanging for the Democrats have already already started, and it's just going to be business as usual, apparently, here in the nation's capital. We're already getting word that they're going to be looking at Obamacare. They're looking at immigration, which is going to be our front line. They're already looking at government shutdown talks. It is amazing. Alan Moore, start with you. Does it surprise you that literally a week after probably the biggest windfall that the GOP has seen in a long time, that already we're hearing words like government shutdown. Does that surprise you? 
Well, the word government shutdown is a, a word that a handful of people are using, not not very many, um, and uh, that doesn't trouble me as much. What what concerns me is that one would have expected that after the tidal wave of results in the elections, that there would be a little bit of humility on the part of uh, uh, of the White House and a little bit of resetting in terms of their thinking about how to deal with the now all Republican Congress, which is why I, for one, uh, am uh, am surprised at at how political and aggressive he's become on on moving ahead now on uh, an immigration executive order, rather than waiting a few months, tell the, re the Republicans what he's going to do by a certain date and give them a little time, but he has chosen a different route, which has really muddied and soured the water, and so I'm surprised and saddened by that. But, but, but Denise Krepp, I mean, you know, it's, there's no question that Obama is still punch drunk from last Tuesday. He's still trying to get his arms wrapped around exactly what the new Congress is going to look like, who some of the chairs are going to be. They're still wrangling some of that out. There's still a lot of possibilities as far as the GOP is now talking about coming up with their own immigration plan. Does the president truly think that he's going to be making a lot of friends inside the Beltway and on the Hill if he takes a very aggressive stance on enforcing immigration policy? Justin, first of all, he, he said he was going to take action after after the election, and it's now after the election, so yes, he will be taking action. This shouldn't be a surprise to anybody that action is going to be had. With regards to being construct, kind of take you know, a little sense of that, because I think there are a lot of people in this town going, what are we going to do? Because not only does the president not know what they're going, he's going to do, but you've got the Republicans, and I could say, oh my goodness, now it's on you, because you have to herd the cats and dogs. And your collection of cats and dogs, um, so some of them don't want to be herded. And I think that is what's going to create more of a havoc for the Republicans. It's not the Democrats. It's going to be the Republicans themselves. Bob Hines, do you agree that there is havoc, in fact, that we've got, that the, the GOP, in fact, has both houses in Congress right now, that this is just too much for them to handle, and that with the past history of issues inside the party, they're going to be able to get out of their own way? No, I don't think that's true. Uh, most of the people who were elected in the Senate are not Tea Party people. Most of the people who were elected for the first time in the House of Representatives are not Tea Party people. And uh, so the Tea Party is still there, but they have less of, less of authority now than they've had since uh, 2011. Now, that, that's one thing. Secondly, the president, I, I agree with Alan, the president is, I thought, totally uh, irresponsible, I guess I would say, but deciding that uh, he was going to do now, even before talking, because both Mr. Boehner and, Mr. O uh, and the Majority Leader uh, McConnell talked to the president on the day after the election. They said they want to work together, and the president's answer was, no, no, I'm going to do it my way. You can't stop me. I'm going to do it. And that is just the most stupid way you can possibly start a new relationship. It's like throwing mud at him. So I'd, I'd be surprised if they don't start throwing some, some mud back at him. They certainly deserve to. Dan Lipner, I mean, you've got, uh, as, as late as this afternoon, Josh Ernst, White House Press Secretary, 
when asked about immigration, came back and said, quote, this is something that's on the agenda this week, and went on to say, the president is nearing a final decision on this, end quote. A final decision by the president doesn't look like it's open arms and receiving the input from Congress, or at least Josh Ernst isn't portraying that for the administration. Well, a couple things. One, I'm shocked that they're playing politics here in Washington. The, the actual fact of the matter is the, the, the time for good policy came and went on immigration. The Senate passed a immigration reform bill, uh, promptly shepherded through a Democratic Senate by Republicans, and then promptly died, died in the House. So if Boehner wanted to move, he could. He could move on that piece of legislation. However, while this White House is terrible at, at politics in the short term, the long-term game, this is pretty smart. By executive order, the president can move on, on immigration by uh, legalizing, uh, I guess the number is about uh, four to four and a half million people for about two years. And Coincidentally, what happens in two years? Another election cycle. And you know what? I'd be just fine as a Democrat watching the Republicans yet again fall all over themselves, talking about how quickly and how, how they can throw out all the people who are here illegally. If this is a long game, it's actually pretty smart. The Republicans can still move in the House with the Senate legislation, but they're not going to. But Alan Moore... You've got a situation where the president, who does, in fact, have executive order privilege, uh, he does have the capability of enforcing laws as is legally defined inside these agencies that he governs over. Uh, however, he's also hearing through media and through internal sources that the Republicans are themselves working on an immigration deal. They're not sitting around, and it's a deal that includes some of the talking points that the administration had included, which also includes more visa for high-skilled workers, why, if you're the president, why wouldn't you wait to at least see if there's some sort of deal to come down instead of going full-blown nuclear option on an executive order? Well, I think that, that both Denise and Dan have, have, have uh, helped explain the thinking. One, he said this is what he was going to do, so go ahead and do it. Well... So for some of us, including the president, people in Washington, including the president, every now and then you say you're going to do something like this president said he was going to do on an executive order on immigration earlier this year. And then he said, you know, I'm going to wait till the end of the year. Then we had an election. It, it would not have done him horrible harm to delay. And as I said before, not just delay indefinitely and leave it to the Congress, but say, I got a few other things I'd like to do with this Congress. So in order to have a working relationship, maybe there's something here that we could do together rather than me just jamming it into their face. Now, Dan thinks that this is a political winner. And obviously inside the White House, there are other people who think it's a political winner. Forget the merits, who think it's a political winner. There are others who think, you know, if you muddy the water, Right now, before you even get started, what are the chances that it's going to mess up your ability to take on some bigger issues like tax reform, trade deals, um, 
and and a host of other and infrastructure investment, a host of other things that are crying out for attention. It's just it's just a huge setback that in my mind he didn't have to he doesn't have to give away the store by a delay, but but extend a willingness to work with the other side and say, let's see what happens. But let me tell you, if it doesn't happen soon, this is what I'm going to do. Spell it out. But Denise Krepp, uh Josh Ernst also said today that the Republicans do have a Trump card. Uh, he said that uh, the president has made clear that one way to stop executive action would be for the House to pass the immigration bill that drew bipartisan support back in June of last year. Uh, is is that is this? This sounds like to me that the president said, "Look, I've already opened up to you. I've given you something that had bipartisan support. Why not pass that bill? Why are we trying to reinvent the wheel and just delay something that should have already been in play?" Because politically, the president knows that there isn't enough time to put that on the floor, get a vote, and then conference it. I mean, very bluntly for for people to say that. And I say that because you have to pass the NDAA, you have to pass appropriations, and there are a couple other bills you have to do. So. Yes, that is a card the president could play, but bluntly, is it a card he's going to play? No. What he'll probably do is do an executive order. He has to do an executive order because this phase, which includes the um, population from coming from folks from Cuba and Mexico and other places, are very disappointed in him. And I think there was certain folks that said that we're not going to come out and vote with Democrats this year because you didn't do an executive order before then. He also needs to do it, quite bluntly, before January 2nd, because if it doesn't happen, and that, by the way, could be the Republicans' first piece of legislation. If it is their first piece of legislation, let's see what is H.R. 1 in, in the 114th Congress. That is a very interesting signal that the Republicans do want to start opening up to the Hispanic caucus and then grab more votes from the Democrats. Carl Tubin? One of the reasons why the president didn't do this before the election is that they made a calculation that if they had done it before the election, there might have been more Democrats that were in trouble uh, because of it, and, and they they delayed it for that was one of the reasons why they delayed it. It was the only reason yeah. they delayed yeah. it, and how did that work yeah. out for them? Yeah. Yeah. But no, hold on, hold on, hold on, hold on, hold on, hold on. But Bob, but, but Bob Hines, when the, the Republicans, the, the Republicans have an ability right now, according to some sources on the Hill that say that, look, you give us a chance to at least get our bills on the floor, we're going to highlight the flaws that are inherently visible with the executive orders that you have openly suggested would come down. Speaker Boehner has said, look, the executive orders are a non-starter for us. You're just basically closing the deal to negotiate an overall deal in this. Why can't we find some sort of middle ground? Are they, in fact, are they, they being the Republicans, are they, in fact, saying, hey, look, we're again opening the door. Why not come to the Hill and at least let's talk it out like civilized people? Well, that's a good question, and the answer is because he doesn't give a damn. Reality, no, look. Uh, as I said earlier, both, both leadership, both leaders of the, of the Republican Congress talked to the president the day after the election and said, we want, we want to find common ground. Next day or so, he throws this up. I mean, that's, and that's, just, that's just throwing it right in your face. He didn't even say, I'm thinking about it. I want to talk to you about it. Let's negotiate. He didn't say squat. He just said, I'm going to do it. 
And, and, the Dan Lipner? Olive, and the olive branch that came from the Hill, from the new leadership. Admittedly, Mitch McConnell did try. I, I will give him credit from this. Yeah. However, the olive branch that actually came from the Hill was, by the way, one of the first things we're going to do is try and repeal Obamacare. Oh, hold, on, hold on, hold on, hold on, hold on, hold on, hold on. That, that, that is hold not on. true. Hold on. That is not true. Okay. That is not true. To talk about that. Hold on. You should be embarrassed. No, hold on. Hold on. That is nobody of any authority said any. Nobody of any authority said any. Gentlemen, gentlemen, gentlemen. Hold on, hold on, hold on. Hold on, hold on. Let Dan, let Dan Lipner continue to dig his hole. Dan, right, there, there the shovel's yours. A, was one of the, the principal issues that many people ran against was appealing Obamacare. In addition to not that, so. not hold so. on, hold on, let him finish. There are ads that were run across the country saying that Obamacare had to go, and it was run by the RNC, so it was actually out there. There are media buys, it's on the record, in, oh. in almost hold no on, other hold on. public, hold more on. public way that it's impossible. Bob Hines? The Tea Party is out there. We know that. There's Looney Tunes on the left. There's Looney Tunes on the right. I'm talking to <laughs> Then you can yell at me. But the fact of the matter is, the leadership on both on, in both parties, on both houses, know exactly what they wanted to do. They wanted to sit down with the president and see if they couldn't put something together. They, tr- they made an, a, an opening offer. They said, we want to talk. And he spurned them. And the next day, he throws this up. That is that is exactly what you do if you want to just cause a big fight, and he's done it. Alan Moore. Suffer for it. You know, I, there there was another point here before about how this is a, a a political winner because of all these Hispanics, and and I it always it it always amuses me and it reminds me of the need to be humble about our certainty about what different ethnic groups feel about a particular issue. There are huge divisions among Hispanics about this particular issue. There are also major problems on this issue in the African-American community who feel very threatened by an increased number of legal immigrants who will be competing for jobs. But there's a whole other thing you can't forget here, and that is, while we're trying to figure out how to, how to hang on to the African-American vote and appeal to Hispanics and appeal to single women, how about the white vote? which went about 60-40 this time around across the country for Republicans. Maybe it's shrinking, but you better not just take that for granted and and cram it in in their face um, because as as we saw in a few races, and you you made a, a side reference to Senator Udall, who admittedly ran a bad campaign, but the whole immigration issue might have helped him, and he might still be in the Senate. Um, these things are never, uh, you know, never, never cut as cleanly as as we would like to think. Carl Tubin. Well, as long as you brought up healthcare, one of the things that no, 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 we're talking immigration now. We're going to get to. I got a whole segment on healthcare. It's just about healthcare. Okay, we'll go back. There we go. Denise Krepp. Are you are you okay? Are you having a stroke? Are you okay? Do we need to call nine one one? No, no, no. Let's keep this on. Let's keep this on, on immigration because Carl's going to bring up a point about about Obamacare, and we got a whole segment on that one. Denise Krepp. Well, there was, there was an interesting op-ed in the Washington Post today by Petula Dvorak talking about children and these illegal children. And, and we need to be thinking about this. This cannot be a Democrat or Republican issue. And, and that's why it would, it would be my hope that we could come to the table. Because when you have children whose parents aren't in the country, 
because their parents sent you to the United States because they thought it was a better place to leave. What are we doing with these children? I mean, and and what? I'm not saying everybody should stay, but we need to realize the long-term impact that is going to happen to a certain population. It's not fair to them, and it's not fair to their families to prolong this. We need to make a quick decision. But Rebecca Kaufman, the Republicans are also arguing, wait a minute, that the president himself is talking about executive orders that are going to have to include large-scale funding for some of these immigration solutions that might be on his on his desk. Uh, and are the Republicans out of line, or is this a political game of risk that they're playing by saying, look, if you put these executive orders out, it's going to require funding, and we have no problem throwing up and why, not widely spoken, but some on the Hill are already saying – we, this is an issue we will take to government shutdown again, just to prove our point. Is that a dice roll for the Republicans right now? Well, I think the issue of immigration has been used as a political card on both sides equally. And right now we're seeing a transparent political move by the Obama administration, who, as Denise pointed out, is scared that Republicans will pass immigration reform on their own. And he's also directly pandering to the base that didn't come out for the Democrats in 2014. They're nervous that they're losing their core constituency. And it's a good political calculation, honestly. I think when it comes to the government shutdown, the media knows that that is something that riles up the American public and kind of sensationalizes that. I don't see that that, that happening anytime soon surrounding immigration, but who knows with our Congress. Dan Lipner. Well, in addition to what Rebecca said, there's also the, again, the politics at, that's at play. The question why Speaker Boehner didn't bring up immigration reform in the House is a, good, is a worthy question. And I would, I would suggest that part of the reason is since his last little vote that he had to maintain his speakership, he actually had votes, the only Speaker of the House in American history, to, get, to not get a unanimous vote of his own caucus that if he were to bring up immigration reform, there would be an even more of a rebellion amongst his caucus. It, it is an unpalatable topic for the House caucus. Even though the, 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 the wise men and, the, the, and women at the head of the Republican Party know that this is an issue that, that is a, in a long-term health of the Republican Party to make it go away, would be a good thing. It, they cannot be gotten through this caucus. But Alan Moore, if we talk about civility, if we talk about compromise, is it is it out in left field to consider that a smart play here might be not pass it, but at least revisit the 2013 immigration bill that the president talks about to at least kickstart the discussions between the White House and the Capitol? I don't know how you revisit it without bringing it up and, and seeking a vote on it. And if we will remember the the, the, the situation that, that Speaker Boehner was faced with, that he concluded he was faced with, was that he did not have a majority of his own caucus in favor of the Senate bill, the bipartisan Senate bill. It did have, I think, eight Republican votes. Um, and and so it wasn't overwhelmingly bipartisan, but it definitely had, uh, had that, that core group all of whom, by the way, think the president is making a huge mistake in, in pushing ahead now. They would like to try to work ac across the across the Capitol and with the president. But the, but the president, 
but but what being what what the speaker concluded was if he didn't have a majority of his own people, he would not bring a bill to the to the house. So you he's could invoking have, the Hastert rule. It's called typically called the Hastert rule mm-hmm. after a, a a former uh Republican speaker. speaker of the house, and it by by agreeing to do that, and there's a lot of pressure for him to do that. What they were hoping to do was do some piecemeal activity on the immigration bill, which they did not end up doing, and that's why we are where we are. I wanted to say one thing. Denise was saying it's going to be expensive. What the president is contemplating is not that expensive. Basically, he's going to say that what we think he's going to say is we are not going to actively move to deport parents of kids who I've already protected. That doesn't cost money. The, the kids you're talking about who, sh- who showed up by the tens of thousands at our border, they're not even part of this conversation. They're not in the president's, the, the, the field of view of his executive order, probably his power. That would, it, it, um, and, and that's a whole huge separate expensive issue, which I think is apart from this one. Well, Carl Tubin, even some inside the party, the Democratic Party, are still a little skeptical of the direct approach that the president's taking on immigration. Example, uh, according to Politico, uh, Senator Tom Carper, Democrat out of Delaware, said, and I quote, if I were the president, my advice would be to make it clear to Republicans that sometime in the first half of next year, we're going to quit trying to find a compromise and the president is going to act unilaterally. Some are saying that Tom Carper is saying, look, instead of acting unilaterally now, let the process work, or are we mishearing Tom Carper? No, I don't think you're mishearing Tom Carper. He's a wonderful human being, a very, very good senator. Uh, But I think that uh, to put something out there in an executive order, I would hope uh, the Republicans would take a look at it and that we could start building from there. Um, now, if they don't want to do it, if they say, well, this is terrible and if, if the next two years are going to be uh, absolutely a uh, uh, waste of time because of it, that's, that's on them. The, the, one, the one thing I will say is that <clears throat> Mayor Bloomberg uh, for years has said, if we get the immigration thing, uh, problems solved, if we get a good immigration bill, the taxes that will come from the people who are working, who will work, on that, we'll, we'll do a lot to help our debt. Bob, you also got Senator Angus King, who is equally, if not more skeptical, the independent senator from the great state of Maine. Uh, it is reported by, again, our friends at Politico, that he conveyed to the White House, quote, as recently as yesterday, that he opposes any executive action on immigration. Are we going to see that this could be the beginning of more congressional-centric moderates on the Hill of saying, look, don't necessarily pull the trigger on executive order just yet? Well, beyond just this particular issue, the more you see senators and congressmen looking to find ways to solve some problems, the better off we're going to be. Because right now we have a real problem. I had hoped after the election and the, and the leadership and the, and the president in their early conversations sounded like they were going to try to find some, some common ground and even and then everything blew up. But it, it's, it's unfortunate because, quite frankly, there are all kinds of problems 
our, our laws that need to be fixed. Tax laws, immigration laws, there's all kinds of stuff. And until we can get some middle ground, people who aren't on extremes on both sides, that can stop things from happening, it's a, it's a screwed up mess. And I would hope, and I think I'm very optimistic, that something would happen. I would hope it would happen. Denise Kraft. I want to go back to what we talked about at the very beginning, and that's what else do we need to do before the end of this Congress? There's a lot of other things we need to do. And, and that's why the moderates are coming out and saying, don't do this. Don't, plus, don't play the nuclear option right now. Because if you do that, how does it stop the other pieces of legislation? And quite frankly, America, one of the things that could happen is the government could shut down. Well, and I don't what, want it to, but that is, I think, what the moderates are concerned about right now, is that if the president does this, what's the reaction? And, unfortunately, one of the reactions we've been talked about is a shutdown. Yeah. Bob Hines, you want to respond? I think, that, I think that what I just heard is probably a possibility, no doubt. Alan Moore. Yeah, I don't I don't I think the chances of a shutdown are very very remote, but what I do see as a possibility which could be highly disruptive along with the bad will going into next year, which is a real thing that affects uh, every issue and everybody is they have by December 11th they have to pass a new spending bill, a new appropriations bill. The the federal fiscal year starts on October 1, runs through September 30th. We didn't get it done this time, so we created a temporary bill, something called a continuing resolution, that would continue spending mostly at last year's levels until December 11th. So that way they could go home, have their elections, come back, and, and get that done. By December 11th, we have to do something. The reason we're talking about a government shutdown is because if we don't pass a bill by December 11th at midnight... Um, we won't have money to spend on December 12th. So that's where the shutdown comes from. And what everyone, at least a week or so ago, was hoping is, most people were hoping we could pass a continuing resolution of some kind of spending bill, an omnibus bill, you see here these different terms, that would, that would maintain spending through next September 30th, and it would not be lingering and be waiting for us when we came back in January, what this does is greatly increases the possibility that instead of a long-term continuing resolution spending bill, we'll have a short-term one into January or February, and then that will have to consume us when these other issues would be Carl Tubin, 30 seconds. But there's already people talking about doing a short-term into the next year so the Republicans, when they take over, could take a, a, a whole look at that sounds like kicking the can down the road to me, but we'll, we'll, we'll continue this discussion when we come back. Uh, we're going to go to break. This is Backroom Politics Live from Shelley's Backroom, 1331 F Street in the heart of our nation's capital, Washington, D.C. We'll be back in two minutes. Stay with us. Wow, a little bit of Fats Waller, Lulu back in town. And I, I tell you, when I am back in town or when any of my friends are back in town or, heck, when we're living here in town, we usually find ourselves down at Shelley's Back Room, 1331 F Street in the heart of our nation's capital, Washington, D.C., right across from the National Press Club. Why do we come here? Well, they've got the city's best cigar menu, the most diversified with some of the best-known brands and some that you might even know, but might want to give it a try. Everything from Arturo Fuentes down to Zeno. You can go all the way from your $9 little petite girly flavored cigars all the way up to the Opus X Lost City. 
They have a cigar for everybody. Mild, medium, strong, heavy. However you want to smoke it, it's available here at Shelly's Back Room. Come in, have Bob, Nah, or any one of the girls show you what the right cigar might be for your taste that evening. Again, Shelly's Back Room, 1331 F Street in the heart of our nation's capital, Washington, D.C. As Bob likes to put it, it is definitely the place to be. You can tell the mailman not to call I ain't coming home until the fall And again I might not get back home at all Lula's back in town And we're back here live at Shelly's Back Room, 1331 F Street, in the heart of our nation's capital, Washington, D.C. Uh, we're going to continue our discussion about the president going proactive on, uh, if you're a Democrat, proactive on several issues, including immigration bill and also pushing forward the agenda and the permanency of Obamacare. Let's finish up this talk about the immigration bill because it's a, it's a great discussion. I think there's still a lot of ground to cover on it. Uh, the one question that some people are asking right now is, Dan Lipner, I'm going to ask you, does the, pro, does, does the president and the administration, if they do go forward with an executive order on immigration, does he have a legality problem? Would his executive order uphold the legality of his executive authority? The answer is yes. So with as far as what we understand, mind you, we haven't seen what he's going to do, but it seems like very much in the same vein of what both Reagan did and what George Herbert Walker Bush did as president, in which case there is no issue. But there's one additional thing I'd like to mention for to both, uh, to both of our, our Republican colleagues here that seems to be suggesting there is somehow a Washington love fest going on that the president taking this executive action is going to make go away. This this president's been embattled with Republicans from day one. So to say that the goodwill is suddenly going to go away, I, I would ask where the olive branch has been on the other side. It just hasn't been there. Bob, so, Bob, hold on, hold on, hold on. Bob Hines, you want to take that one? Well, it's all well and good. That's history over the, you know, water over the dam. We've got a new situation. The president soured the table. 
That's that's all there is to him. I don't know if he meant to do it deliberately or he did it because he didn't know what else to do. But it's a, it's a mistake to do it politically long term for him and for the country. Alan Moore. Yeah, there there has not been great goodwill. There is no question about that. What what he's fouled up here is what looked like the potential for some goodwill going forward, given the new construct of the Senate. Um, and I think that's what has been muddied. And I, you know, I don't know. Bob Hines. I don't know if, if, you know, if there's any way to to adjust what he's trying to do. But it's it's unfortunate because I had high hopes, and I think a lot of us around the table, and probably people on Capitol Hill, had a lot of hopes that they could actually, uh, in the new Congress, get some things done maybe next year. It, uh, and uh, we have tax problems. We have the immigration bill is very clear. Needs to be fixed. And needs for years. There's things that need to be done, and there's a, there's a broader, there's a there's an easier way in in the House than there used to be to get things through. There's there's fewer Tea Party hardheads, and they're more rational people than there have been in about three years right now. Dan Lipner, I mean, you you have to admit that this is an opportunity for the president to actually come out. Historically, over the past six years, he has not been, in by many observances, proactive of working with the Hill, according to Republicans. He does have an opportunity right now to cash in on a Republican-run Congress, both houses, and saying, look, okay, we'll talk, but if it screws up, it's on your head, not mine. Is he going to take advantage of this, or is this a stunned political move on his part? Well, again, they're all political moves. This is Washington. But those games being played, as far as the, the long-term upside for who and for what. So the president now is going to be playing defense for all of his, le for his legislative achievements while he's been in office, because he doesn't have the Congress. Beyond that, the only other thing he, he has at play is a legacy. And the best way to secure that legacy is for Democrats to still be the resident in the White House, three years from now. And that game can be played with a different counter-narrative with the Republicans. The, the poisoning the well argument is a legitimate one. However, the, the power to pass legislation is still in Congress. The, the president can sign his executive order. And a couple of choices the Republicans have. They can damn him and, then, and go after the Hispanic community in a negative way, as going into 2016, that would be the bad move. A good move would be for both chambers of Congress to take up a, an intensive move for immigration reform, which they are still entirely capable of working through and passing to completely circumvent any executive order the president does. That has not been the conversation. Alan Moore. There was a comment, before, a couple of comments before that, that one, that what the president is proposing is consistent with historically what Presidents Reagan and Bush did. It's way beyond that. Um, the, the mood was different. The content is different. So anybody who says, oh, this, the, this is the thing that presidents do all the time is simply not the case. The, the groundwork was laid. In the case of Reagan, it was right after a major immigration reform bill. Everyone knew he was going to do it. There was no huge objection, and the same thing happened with Bush. Um, the, but there's a bigger issue here about, about, whether, it's, about whether 
Did I say it was legal? No. Hold on. You, hold on. Look, you can't look at your computer and then no, no, no. Hold on, hold on, guys, hold on, hold on. Dan, 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 let him, Dan, let him finish. Let him, let him finish. I, I have not spoken to the legality question. That I simply said when you said that it was just like the others, I said it's actually not just like the others from a political and substantive standpoint. I didn't say anything about the legality. So you know, please listen. So. So with the, with regard to the legality, that's not yet determined. It's probably legal, but I don't know that, and we don't we haven't seen the content, so it's hard hard to know what's legal. But if I were a Democrat or anybody who cared about how government worked, I would be very nervous with simply saying, "Let's go balls to the wall, expand." Family show, family show. Presidential executive order making without limitation, because what goes around comes around, and it may be legal, fine, but is it a good idea? Is it really the way we want this government to function? Do we want a future Republican uh, president, for example, to say, we're no longer going to enforce through the IRS the individual mandate on Obamacare. We're going to tell the IRS, don't collect those bills. Do we really want to provoke back and forth and back and forth? I think this is a whole other issue that we've got to be careful what might be unleashed. Hold on, I want to bring that up because I promised Carl we'd bring up Obamacare, but Denise, last talk on this one. Can I put a placeholder down? I mean, we, we didn't have an opportunity to meet last week. But one thing I think we do owe it to our listeners is to talk about what is happening uh, right now with the changeover in the Senate and for the last two years. And I bring that up because we've all been in various parts of the administration. And I think our listeners might benefit from understanding about what's going on in the mindset of a Democratic staffer whose boss has lost the election. And, and what are they doing? And how is this going to impact? Well, and, I, and, I, and, I, and I say that, I don't have to do this now, but could, we, could I put a placeholder in? Because perhaps, perhaps. We'll, we'll, we'll talk about it. We'll, 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 that sounds real inside baseball, but we, we'll take that up. Carl Tubin, though, when, when, we, when we talk about what's going on right now, one of the things that the Republicans have also brought up is the victory lap that the president took last year on Obamacare. Now there seems to be a little bit of a hidden mind that they didn't discover in this uh, Jonathan Gruber talking about how the electorate is stupid. They push this through. However, they are opening up open enrollment for the second time. It doesn't look like Obamacare is going anywhere. Well, you know, the point I was going to make before, you might all laugh, but if if, uh, more candidates had stuck with the president and talked about Obamacare, because Obamacare happens to be fairly popular, and uh, uh, people are accepting it, and 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 that could have helped them, help help some candidates in different places. Now, so the question you're asking, uh, you know, it's uh, this guy was paid four hundred thousand uh, dollars by HHS. Uh, Sounds like a senior advisor to me. Well, you know, he might have been, and. Uh, um, uh, you know, it's you know now all of a sudden after he creates something, he's now saying this is terrible. But but Becca Kaufman, you know, when we talk about Obamacare, uh, the Republicans have already started with even on election night. Ted Cruz was talking about repealing Obamacare. 
Uh, a lot of moderate Republicans thought that that was the wrong time, and it's the wrong message. They should be focusing down the road versus what's already happened. And at a time when we're talking about the Affordable Care Act, when you look at quality of coverage, over 70% of the people covered under the Affordable Care Act are either satisfied or extremely satisfied with the type of coverage and the and the and the and the um, encompassing coverage that they've gotten. Those numbers are pretty striking that the Democrat or the, that the Democrats could tout and the Republicans don't seem to be looking at. Why is that? I'm not sure where you're getting those numbers from. Gallup released a poll this week saying that 56 percent of Americans disapprove of Obamacare. Only 37 percent approve. In terms of well, the, the, the numbers, the numbers, real quick, came from both CNN and from CBS and Marist. All of them said basically the same thing. You had about a 35 to 38, depending on which poll, extremely satisfied, a 43 to a 40 to 43 that were satisfied with the type of coverage. That to me sounds like, wait a minute, the president might have something here. There's a clarification. Could I, could I clarify you, you, you can. You can, Alan. Apples and oranges here. So, um, as, Be as Becca said, the American public still doesn't like it as a whole. The polls you're referring to were polls of people who who are newly covered because of Obamacare. How do they feel? Right. How shocking that people who get massive subsidies for their health insurance are pleased or couldn't get insurance at any price but Alan, or please. There's nothing oh, surprising that people who now, who couldn't get it and now have it or who have it now, it's significant subsidy that's 70%. I would have thought it would be much higher than that. Like 99. Like up in the 90s. But, that, I mean, that, you're, that, but you're talking about, oh, hold on, hold on, hold on, hold on. When you're talking about people who newly registered, some who even had health care prior to enrolling under the Affordable Care Act, they are still, a majority of those that are covered under Affordable Care Act are satisfied or extremely satisfied. Are you listening to me? No, I, I, no, I mean, subsidized. I'm just, no, 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 wait, 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 hold on, 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 hold on. I'm just saying, what I'm saying to you is, what I'm saying to you is, that is a pretty telling number. That I mean, like it or not, Dan Lipner, take this one. Okay, well, well, two parts. One is, is, is taking a bit further than yes, people who are getting coverage through the exchanges in Obamacare. Yes, Obama is Justin is correct. It is not just people getting subsidies. A lot of them are not just people getting subsidies, and that's why the uninsured number has dropped. Now, the number where I suspect Beck is going to go with the overall disapproval is you actually have to divide that disapproval in by about you know, two-fifths, three-fifths, that there's about, of the disapproval number, there's about two-fifths of that disapproval number that actually wants it to be more expensive. That yes, they disapprove of Obamacare because it didn't go far enough. So it's not a wholesale rejection of the system, but saying this needs to be improved. Becca? I think that it's, very funny to watch Democrats cherry pick data to try to get people to believe that Americans like Obamacare when disapproval ratings have been consistently high. This midterm election was a referendum essentially on Obamacare. 
when it comes to enrollment this week, it's almost embarrassing what's happening. Okay, but let me ask, let me ask you a question though. When when you say that it's a referendum on Obamacare, and you bring up the number that fifty three percent of the or fifty six percent of Americans disapprove of the of, of the Affordable Care Act, I have to say this. At the same time, polls last week, including one put out by Gallup, said that. Do you approve of Obamacare? Those numbers come out. But when you ask them, do you approve of the Affordable Care Act, a majority of those people don't know the difference between what is Obamacare and the Affordable Care Act. A good chunk of them think they're two different things. How does, how does, the, how does the American electorate sit there and say, wait a minute, I don't like Obamacare, yet – when you ask them about the Affordable Care Act, they go, well, I don't know what that is. Does that seem odd? I think that you're making a commentary on the intellect of the American public. Just like Gruber. He's Gruberizing the public. Yeah, I, 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 <laughs> Alan Moore, if I could put you in timeout, I would. That was evil. Becca Coffin, I'm sorry, I had to say that. Go ahead, Rebecca. Okay, the, the reality is um, White House officials are saying that people should expect to see unexpected costs, that premiums, will rise in many cases. I mean, they were very, very, very shy about encouraging people to enroll, and that's why they're saying that they're expecting 30% less people to enroll this time than last time. It's because Obamacare is unpopular. You can't hide from that fact. But, but Denise Krupp, you also have to deal with the fact that the president's got another hidden landmine, that there is some, including some in his administration, that have come out and said, hey, wait a minute, there were provisions that were hidden. He's now having to do a whole damage control campaign saying that, no, none of the provisions of Obamacare were hidden. It was completely transparent, ironically coming out of a presidency that has had a lot of transparency. He's saying this was all done above board and the, the American people knew what they were getting. Okay. Well, let me actually read you an email that I received. You're going to like this one. I think many of you know that um, I applied for insurance via the exchange, and I bought insurance, and then I have a debate with my insurance carrier about um, my insurance because I think they're overcharging me. Let me read this email I received. Dear Denise, I hope this finds you well. I want you to let you know that insert insurance carrier provided us with an update regarding your issues. They reported that their system shows that I'm paid through a certain month, but they still disconnect. After discussing with my supervisor, she instructed me to refer you to the District of Columbia Department of Insurance, Securities, and Banking in order to file a complaint and seek a resolution as the exchange does not handle billing disputes with the insurance carriers. Okay. Well, what's your point? Well, as Alan is sitting here and shaking his head, my point is that there are a lot more problems that are about to come to light with this exchange because those of us who are enrolled in it and have a problem with it have no recourse when trying to resolve problems, and that is going to be an even bigger problem for this administration. Carl Tubin. The main thing I'll say is if Obamacare is, is, comes to the Senate and if it is repealed and the House repeals it, well, the president's probably going to, uh, going to uh, uh, veto it. But if it goes through the Senate, Mr. McConnell might not be able to go home because his state is almost fully uh, uh, under Obamacare. So 
that could be an interesting situation. Becca Kaufman. That plays into the false dichotomy that Justin raised before, which is the idea that if you don't, if you don't have Obamacare, you can't have health insurance, and this is an idea that the Democrats have pushed and been largely successful in getting the American public to believe that if we repeal Obamacare, then they'll suddenly be left without health care, completely, I mean, neglecting the fact that we had a health care system before. The other thing that I want to um, point out is that the opt-out fine has now raised this time around to $325. So people who opt out opted out previously will have a harder time doing that this time around, and that's going to raise another slew of issues for people who didn't want to be involved in this. Go ahead, Alan Moore. I'll expand on that point because that is another little hidden surprise for people. The, the, the first year, the, the, the mandate said that if you don't buy insurance, then you have to pay 95 bucks or 1% of your pay up to $50,000. So that would be 500 bucks. What happens now in the second year is if you don't buy, you not only do you not have insurance, but you pay this fine, which the Supreme Court decided was a tax, um, it, you pay 325 bucks um, or 2% of your pay, which up to 50 grand is $1,000, um, and it, and it, or it's 100,000, then it's 2,000 bucks. There are a lot of people out there who, in year one, thought $95, who cares? I don't have to bother with it. And it won't be charged until their tax refund uh, this uh, this next April. But the the mandate begins to sting going forward, and there's there's very little understanding of that. And so that's just a, another little landmine down the road. I don't make a judgment on it. I happen to believe in, in a personal <laughs> mandate myself. So, um, uh, and, and to make it work, you got to have some way to make it work. But they have done such a piss-poor job of, of explaining how it works that people don't, uh, you know, that's why this stuff ends up being a surprise. But, but Bob Hines, it, it seems to me that we saw in 2010, or I'm sorry, in 2012, a year that everybody was up in arms about Obamacare, it seemed to almost backfire on the Republicans as a huge platform for that election cycle. Yet, at the same time, we're starting to see these hidden landmines that are starting to come out after midterm elections. Are, are we, in fact, looking at a either a political stalemate or a game of political chicken between the Republicans who are saying repeal, 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 which isn't likely to happen, and a White House that's saying quit crying over spilled milk, you're going to have to deal with it, and we're going to hold firm on this. Well, the Democrats are certainly going to hold firm on it. I don't think the Republicans are going to actually try to repeal it legislatively. I don't believe that. But there, there are other surprises coming along, too. It's not too long that uh, the folks who reared up you know, last year and their contracts are coming up, the rates are going to go up about 20%. I mean, that's what's going to happen. Interesting point. That's just a fact. Becca Kaufman, last word. The employer mandate, once that kicks in, and we're already seeing businesses cut hours and jobs due to, like preemptively before the employer mandate, but once that starts, we're going to see so many jobs filled, so many hours, plus, and there's going to be outcry about that, definitely. Interesting point. Okay, we're going to take a break. It's time for happy hour. We're going to order our drinks. We're going to get ready for our second hour. We'll be back in three minutes. This is... Backroom Politics Live from Shelley's Backroom, 1331 F Street in the heart of our nation's capital, Washington, D.C. 
We will be back in three and a half minutes. Stay with us. You know, here on Backroom Politics, you hear us order drinks uh, during happy hour, the second hour of Backroom Politics, live on Blog Talk Radio. But what you don't understand is the quality of the drink that we're getting here at Shelley's Backroom, 1331 F Street in the heart of our nation's capital, Washington, D.C. Backroom Politics premier sponsor. Hey, you got Dave Hammerly and the bar crew there at Shelley's Backroom that really know how to pour a drink. Whether it's something simple like my on-air Jack Daniels on the rocks with a splash of water, or whether it's something elaborate like what has to be the best martini in the District of Columbia for Congressman Al Swift. Wine selection, scotch selection that will blow your mind. They've got Highland scotches. They've got Isla Sky scotches blended, single malt, anything you want Port wines to go with that great cigar from the great humidor. Down here at Shelley's Back Room, 1331 F Street, in the heart of our nation's capital, Washington, D.C. Come on down, have a drink, and make some new friends. Or, heck, just come on down and listen to Backroom Politics on Tuesdays.
And we're back here at Shelley's Back Room, 1331 F Street, in the heart of our nation's capital, Washington, D.C. This is Back Room Politics Live on Blog Talk Radio. Uh, we're going to switch gears right now and talk about the uh, developing story coming out of uh, Ferguson, Missouri. Uh, the grand jury is about to close out the investigation on the Ferguson Police Department uh, officer who shot a uh, young African-American man in that municipality some months ago. It began what was a huge, huge demonstration, at some points riot, inside this suburban St. Louis neighborhood. Uh, we're going to be keeping an eye on it, but it looks like right now that there are many, many factors involved here. One, the fact that there could be an indictment against this officer for the shooting of this young man. At the same time, the FBI is warning that there could be dramatic attacks against law enforcement officers in the region and even nationwide should there not be an indictment on the officer in question. At the same time, the Ku Klux Klan has now announced that they will be in Ferguson to deal with protests by the African-American community regarding this shooting. That'll it, make everything all better. This continues to be a powder keg in middle America. Let's talk about the possible handing down of an indictment in the grand jury investigation, which was held back after the uh, elections. It is very imminent, according to sources out that we have in St. Louis. Uh, could happen as early as this evening or tomorrow. Uh, the big question we have is, let's look at the indictment itself or lack of indictment. Uh, Alan Morley, start with you. When we look at what's happening out there in Ferguson and out in St. Louis County, uh, should the grand jury choose to indict the officer? It could be argued by those who are supportive of law enforcement that this was a political move, not so much a legal move. Is there merit to that argument right now? I, I'm not going to touch that one. I, I don't presume to know what the what evidence the grand jury has heard. The grand juries are not normally prone to a lot of political pressure. Um, uh, having said that, there is this awareness of the, getting the National Guard ready and all this concern, people flooding into the area um, with, the, with the sort of an expectation which has been fed by leaks, uh, which are unfortunate, uh, but happen. Um, that there won't be an indictment, and there's uh, a lot of anger and rage to tap into to get people to respond, a lot of effort by responsible folks to be sure that if they don't like what the grand jury does, that they can, they can object but, but uh, aggressively, peacefully. Um, and and uh, there is even training sessions for people who are interested in being careful and thoughtful about this. We don't know what's going to happen. I would never suggest uh, ahead of time that that a grand jury might be subject to political pressure. If they were, if they are, it 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 would simply mean 
they're going to indict somebody when they don't think they've got a strong case, which is a really would be a really troubling indictment of how the system works. And if they're right about that, it would just postpone. Um, it would, would elevate expectations and postpone until sometime in the future. Meanwhile, casting a massive shadow over a person who was unfairly indicted. I'm hoping that that if pol that, that that politics does not enter and does not play a role, but beats me what's going to happen. Bob Hines. It strikes me that the most important thing could happen, as Alan was talking about the, the need to get the information out, is to have the grand jury foreman or the prosecutor's office or whoever is the, or maybe a combination of that and the governor's office would have a very full, open press conference talking about all the evidence that was there, everything that was on the table, all the issues and how they were each one separately decided upon, right or wrong, up or down. I think it's very important that as many facts about what they know, and if there's anything they do not know clearly, that should all be laid on the table. I think otherwise there will always be somebody who will say, geez, there was a fix, fix was in one way or the other. I think every bit of evidence needs to be laid out with, by responsible people. I would like to see the governor involved. I'd like to see, you know, whoever needs to Well, the governor, the governor has already, as of last night, declared a state of emergency inside St. Louis County and surrounding regions around St. Louis in the state of Missouri. It's a wise idea, given the situation. But I think what has to happen is something like I just said, so that everybody can at least, whether they like it or not, hear as much of the facts that, are, that have been definitively set out. But Dan Littner... You had a comment. Well, the problem with that is, and I agree that in the best case scenario, that if if the if the officer is not indicted, they do lay it all open as much as you can. Grand juries are still secret. That they still make it as public as possible. That being said, it's still not going to solve the problem. The the riots in Ferguson erupted not because of the actions of this single police officer in this one incident but of a collection of issues that minority communities and urban areas have been experiencing for decades. And this is really an issue to America is how they, how they see and interact with police. And minorities in urban areas will, will see this as, yet again, a police behaving badly. Whether or not this incident was or was not, if the officer goes unindicted, that's how it will be seen. And that will not solve the problem. It's a much, much larger problem than this one issue in Ferguson. Bob Hines? I couldn't agree more. The citizens would be very upset. However, reality is, long term, you, you, you have got to put all the evidence out and you have to, you have to, you have to go from there. If there's going to be more, if we're going to be rioting, you know, we'll stop it. But you, you've got a situation. It's, it's not a good situation, I understand. But you can't, you know... If and I have no idea what's what the what is true or not. I've never heard. I don't know. You've heard so many different things. The fact of the matter is, whatever the grand grand jury comes up with, all those facts need to be laid out in the public arena. And those people who would be upset about it have a legitimate claim, I think, 
and that in, in, it looked, sounds like in a community that was primarily a black community and is almost overwhelmingly a white constabulary makes no good sense political. People but, ought to understand how to make things work better, and they have to do it. But, but the solution is not rioting. It's to getting a better system put in place. Okay, but Alan Moore, when, when we look at the reaction versus the, the reactionary nature of the crowds that have traditionally been in Ferguson since this event occurred, uh, many of the antagonists, that were present in Ferguson have already started to rally in surrounding areas, which does not send a good message nationwide. It it just seems that any sort of violent reaction that comes out of Ferguson is just going to further exacerbate any sort of possible dialogue, civil or even confrontational dialogue, but it'll exacerbate the dialogue of how the thin blue line operates, whether it's in a suburban community like Ferguson or you look at a large city like New York where Commissioner Bratton has a situation right now, uh, it, it's, it's, it, it, there's no positive outcome from this. Am I wrong? Well, I, I don't know. I, I, wish, uh, you know. I wish I could see uh, into the future. Um, I wish I could see what the prosecutor says about whatever the decision, I don't think we'll learn any of that. Let me ask this about, question. About any, let, about any, any, any member of the well, grand jury. Well, let me jury. ask you this question. Traditionally, grand jury uh, actions are sealed. Would it make sense for the governor to unseal it and Never. open up? Never. No. Why not? <laughs> it's a sacred part yeah, of no, the system. There's, you would never do that. There's there's hearsay. There's There's all sorts of different rules that apply in the in the confidential confines of the grand jury room um and you don't want to you 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 don't breach that um and having said that um somebody does have to come out and say this is the decision the grand jury made it's pretty obvious it's pretty apparent that that prosecutors typically have an enormous amount of influence in leading and guiding grand juries um so the 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 prosecutor will know the case, will know the problems with the case, and and the public has a right to know what those problems are. The press needs to hear it. The public writ large needs to hear it. Locals may not be listening, and that's the thing you cannot control: the the reaction in the streets, the possible violence, the possible response by by police or national guard possible damage, possible theft, possible injuries um, on the one hand. On the other hand, there's going to be a flood of people. You remember that, that Attorney General Eric Holder went into Ferguson, sat down with groups of local citizens. It had a huge impact on the locals that at least somebody was paying attention and listening. That's kind of ancient history now, but, but, but going forward, but, but it's impossible to, uh, to guess at what, what might go on, but it is an important reminder that there is racial tension in this country, and we can't wish it away. Um, we have to engage it, be involved in it, pay attention to it, and and bring people of goodwill together, and hopefully get lucky as well. But Denise, you shake your head when you hear that the grand jury sealed indictment or the grand jury sealed action should not be unsealed. Would it not make sense publicly to allow 
some insight into the public, wouldn't it at least thwart some of the action by some of those who might take violence into account? Well, sure. It, it, it might make sense, but it would also violate the very core of our checks and balances system of, of separation between judiciary, executive, and legislative branches. You know, we, we should not be doing this. That, 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 would, that would be a what concerns me is the assumption. Um, we don't know that. You know, a lot of people have talked in the past couple of days. You know, um, about the '68 riot, about what happened in um, the Watch riots in LA, and then there were the riots in 1991 again in. I think a lot of things have changed. Um, there have been much more conversations that have been occurring, and, and I don't think we should make the assumption that they're going to be riots. I, I think this should be a learning exercise, and I, and I say that because um, I became um, African American neighborhood, and what's happening this summer were. Denise, you're not African American, but want to work with you so that you can represent our views. And I would hope that others would be having and making sure that everybody's voice is heard at the table. Because when you aptly describe as we have, that if this was an African American community, as Bob did, with a predominantly white constabulary. There is a problem, and that is something that we do need to change. Okay, Carl Tubin. I think the governor was very fully advised when he sent the National Guard in. I think I, I agree with uh, Denise that there should be discussions, there should be well, talks. Uh, Claire McCaskill came in before. She should be out there again. The governor should be there. The attorney general should be there to try to keep, <clears throat> to try to make sure that level heads prevail and that it doesn't break out into a riot situation. Now, that might not be possible under the circumstances that we have now, but I think the governor missed a big step uh, when, he, when he put the National Guard out there. Dan Lipner. Um, well, I, I agree with Denise as far as the assumptions on riots. I, I think it would be irresponsible for the governor not to take their preemptive action. I mean, there, there has already been rioting in Ferguson, and I, I don't think the feelings in the community, and some of which are very legitimate, um, anger toward toward the police department in Ferguson, um, that has not gone away. That being said, there are shop owners, there are business owners, there are families that are trying to live their lives as well. It is a delicate balance, and it does not necessarily need to come to blows, but to ensure that that peace still is on the streets, um, I think the governor is behaving responsibly. And I'm, I'm hoping for a good outcome overall uh, uh, for this issue, but I am not, I'm not terribly confident that that will be the case. Yeah. Becca. I think no matter what the decision is, we're already seeing a good outcome in that we're having conversations about racial tensions and lack of social cohesion in places like Ferguson or Washington, D.C. We're comparing 
riots in Keene, New Hampshire, to riots in Ferguson, and, and the way that race played into both of those incidences and how the media responded differently to them. The fact that America is having these conversations is a good outcome, no matter what the decision of the case is. This is also a great opportunity for politicians to step forward and use this as a launch pad to talk about criminal justice reform, and we're going to see that happening. This is a, criminal justice reform is a bipartisan issue, and the more and more things like Ferguson happen. But, but what reforms? What criminal justice reforms? Marijuana versus cocaine. Um, yeah. Okay, that's what I'm asking. Reducing mandatory minimum sentencing, um, looking into alternative ways of punishing criminals, um, giving more power to local law enforcement, taking it out of the hands of the federal government so we don't see militarized, militarized police states. Um, there's a there's a plethora of things that can be done on criminal justice reform. I mean, lowering our incarceration. I mean, it's 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 endless. But the point is is that this incident in Ferguson has created those discussions, and that's that's a net positive, I think, for our country. Bob Hines. It strikes me that one of the things that might be helpful, no matter what the decision is made, it might be helpful that if a number of political public figures, the governor, maybe a senator, congressman, the mayor of city of the city of St. Louis, it might be good if all of them were also on the scene when the, when the discussion is open and when the announcement is made. Because with a lot of political leadership there, all urging calm and quiet and let's be, let's make sense, let's, let's understand what happened. I think that's one of the ways we might hope that there would be less difficulty in whatever the decision is. But, but Dan Lipner, we're seeing this more and more in these in these very delicate and sensitive cases where the the criminal justice system is largely politicized through the actions of some in the streets of, in this case, Ferguson. The riots have maybe deterred some to say, oh, there shouldn't be an indictment against this officer. Let the facts play out as they may. Or there should be an indictment of this officer, good shoot or bad shoot. He took the life of a young man. He should be held accountable for that, thus ruining the life of largely a, a solid police officer in Ferguson. Where do you balance these two? in saying, look, we have a criminal justice system that's worked for hundreds of years. At the same time, we have a media monster that's got to be fed, and nothing feeds it more than uh, civilians riding in the streets when an indictment or a non-indictment is handed down. I, I think that still oversimplifies it. And and the Ferguson case, and I've, I've said this before, I think is, is a bad example since there there is some evidence that suggests the shoot may have been justified. So let me expand the conversation a little bit. There, there are at least three other issues of either of, of police acts that are almost beyond dispute that that since Ferguson have come out. One of which was the New York City choking that killed a gentleman. Forgive, forgive me for not knowing his name. Um, in which case, the the, 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 the an, illegal, an illegal chokehold yeah. that the mayor tried to act and the New York City Police Department pushed back very hard against the mayor. There's also the shooting of of a guy who's buying a BB gun in a Walmart, police coming in, shooting and killing the gentleman. And last but not least, there's a case of a guy being pulled over for not wearing a seatbelt and then being shot. This, this gentleman survived for reaching for his wallet uh, when he was trying to obey the, the 
the lawful order. The lawful order. So these are other issues. And in all three cases, we have video of all three. In other observers have said there is absolutely no reason for those folks who have either been shot or killed or choked in, in those cases. And those are issues that are that the Ferguson uh, protests and riots were are actually the boiling point representing. It's not just the Mike Brown shooting. So until that is addressed larger and at the, the political folks attending and listening, that is part of it. But until there's actually substantive change that the people that have that are being the innocent people that have been victimized actually see results, this is going to be an ongoing but issue. Then, I hope Rebecca's right but, but, that, but, does, that this does lead to solutions. But it, it does it does beg to the question that again there is a there is a check and balance even in the criminal justice system. For example, we have we talked about the grand jury uh, unsealing of the grand jury action as a possibility. In law enforcement you have an inspector general in some of your larger jurisdictions or a very strong office of internal affairs and professional standards in a lot of larger and even some of your smaller jurisdictions. It seems to me, though, that instead of driving it through violence and protests, a dialogue of maybe even understanding the process, is that a dialogue that should occur? Maybe the general public needs to know what law enforcement's true role is and how they are internally checked versus just saying, oh, it's a thin blue line? That goes into a fundamental misunderstanding of, of and for all of us here, we, we are, we are ill-equipped at this table to talk about what it is to be a minority in an area and feeling like the powers that are in control are not hearing the problems that you have. And I, I, I grew up in Miami, and I grew up at, at while at a white kid from public school, a minority growing up, that said, I never felt like my voice wasn't heard. I have plenty of friends who, who don't look like me who don't feel that same way. And if you feel like the political process is closed to you, you respond through alternative means that are available to you. Becca, you were shaking your head as Dan was talking. You were, Well, what, I, what's your concern? Um, as a woman who's faces institutional sexism on a daily basis. I do think that I interact with structures that are rigged against me on a, on a daily basis. I think that, I, I mean, I've never experienced racism, and I was blessed to have a fortunate upbringing, but I, I can relate to some of the things you were just Alan Moore. Yeah, I wanted to say some, something about, about Governor Nixon, um, the Democrat mm -hmm. um, uh, governor who's found himself with a problem he wished to could have passed on to someone else. Um, he has created uh, or participated in the creation of something called the Ferguson Commission, which is a citizens group, uh, multi-ethnic, multiracial group that that is is instructed to or charged with figuring out the life of Ferguson, what contributed to this particular incident, what are the issues that eat at the citizenry of Ferguson, in the hope that there can be a greater understanding, a shared understanding, um, and, and education, healing when it comes to that, and, and, uh, and, and I'm sure role of the police along the way. Uh, 
I don't know the details of this uh, of this commission, who's involved, who's in charge, but I think it speaks to an effort to respond to the situation. I did want to say one thing, though, about, about calling out the National Guard, because there was some criticism of the governor for doing that. He's damned if he does and damned if he doesn't. What he's done here is he said, this is basically a police matter, but we are pre-positioning some number, and it hasn't been said how many, uh, National Guard troops to be prepared if it gets to be more than the police can handle to step in. And if you remember, in a way, that's what happened the last time. It's just that they had to come in with it. It, it all exploded so fast they weren't pre-positioned, and there was there was an enormous amount of physical damage. Um, and uh, so I, I have no quarrel with uh, with the with the governor's plan to to to, to pre-position some National Guard troops because if if he doesn't and this and this thing would explode for lack of manpower the the uh, the ramifications for him personally politically would be enormous. But Bob Hines, you know, we're hearing a lot of this, but at the same time, many municipalities, large and small, uh, have created. Citizen police academies, ride-along programs. Uh, they've created leadership programs to expose uh, the general citizens and leaders in the community how, in fact, the law enforcement mechanism works inside their town or their city. They're constantly begging for people to join in. They're constantly asking for input. Some of your larger communities, such as Washington, D.C., New York, Boston, Atlanta, Miami, have citizen advisory boards for the police departments that are in that jurisdiction. Yet, that doesn't get brought out a lot. Is, is this just a matter of law enforcement's done a bad job of promoting the ability to educate the general public on how hard their job is? Or is this just a matter of it's just going to be the same rhetoric coming out of the thin blue line that we've always heard? Well, I think the most important thing we could do is see to it that in, in whatever community you're talking about, that the as reasonably as possible, without, without digging too deeply into people who shouldn't be involved, but you, you would think that you would want to have your law enforcement agencies represent the local community. I think that is more important than anything else you can do. But and I, and, I, and, and it, it isn't true in a number of places. Obviously, Ferguson was an example but, of exactly but here's, unfortunate. Okay, here's my problem with this. As, as the only person who's actually been in state and local law enforcement. Yeah, we, well, we've all been arrested from time to time. Well, of course. I mean, <laughs> hell, I haven't arrested y'all. But he, but he, stop streaking, Bob. Yeah, okay, yeah. Okay, you can't undo hey, listen, that. Listen, with my legs, I don't streak. Yeah, I we notice. Very slowly. We notice. It's like a tree sloth streaking. Here, here's my point. I've got, and I, I've bit my tongue on this, but the, but the reality is, it, you know, when we when we hear these statements of, for example, Ferguson, Ferguson has open employment. You Anybody can apply to be a police officer in Ferguson as long as you meet the minimum requirements. Anybody can apply, and there are recruiting efforts put underway by even some of your larger municipalities, including Washington, D.C. Anybody can be a police officer, regardless of race, regardless of, 
of sexual orientation, regardless of male, female, it doesn't anybody can be a police officer if you meet those requirements. If it's a matter of the 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 minority communities don't feel that they're widely represented by their police department, then then tell those who wish to be police officers and be part of the solution. Tell them, here's your opportunity. Be part of the solution. Cowboy up, Denise Krepp. Oh, my Krep. God, how naive of you. How is that yeah. naive? Oh, no, wait, how is that naive, God. Denise? You've got to encourage. God, to be kidding me. How, no, no, tell me how that's naive. Sure. Well, okay. Tell me how that's naive. All right. Let me talk to you about Coast Guard. No, 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 yeah, no, no, don't, no, no, do not yes. talk to me about Coast Guard, yes, because that is a garbage analysis, No, that is an absolute no garbage, garbage, that is analysis. not state and local law Justin, enforcement, put, apples to, all right. put oh, apples to oranges, put apples to oranges, give me apples to oranges, give me, give me apples to oranges, you are a African American female, you look at an all white male force, do you really think you're going to want to walk in there and say, I'd like to break this glass ceiling? It's that type of leadership. Yes, That's what they're looking for. Do you know how for. hard that type of leadership is mentally, not only on you and your family and your and yet, And yet, I see one of the most popular police chiefs in America, in Kathy Lanier, a single mom female. And do you know how hard it is to be somebody? Because trust me, I have broken enough glass ceilings in my life. So do not tell me that you are not being naive when you say it's Absolutely. so easy to come in here and break some glass I am going to call I, the BS flag on you so hard and so fast. And you want to know, so, know something, Denise? And you want to know something, Denise? When I see female chiefs rank to the high, achieve the highest ranks in their department and largely starting off as patrol and officers. You know what, Justin, I bet you've never been told the only reason you're here is because you're female. The only reason you're here is because you're white female. The only reason you're here is because you're a white single female. Have you ever had that told that you're the only no, reason? No, I have not. I will admit, I have not. So don't I have tell not. me that it's But do not to go but do not classify do not classify this as a huge problem. Justin, when my husband was being elected do you know how many times people came up to me and said, I will vote for him because he's not like the others? I'm like, I'm sorry, what are you talking about? I said, I'm married to white men. And he said, exactly, because he's not like the other white men. It was mind-boggling what I saw this summer, and it was mind-boggling when I was through my own campaign. Carl, there is an incredible tension in this country that you're not recognizing. Carl Tubin. Well, first of all, we don't know what the situation is in Ferguson. We don't know, and I agree with you that people should be brought in and everything else. But we don't know if, if, if the people in Ferguson over the past umpteen years decided, you know, these people aren't good enough. We're not going to hire them. And, and, and maybe somebody who tried to be hired, if they were dismissed like that, should have gone to court. But they didn't. So the thing is, each situation has a set of circumstances. And it's hard for us to sit here and decide that Ferguson uh, did something that other people couldn't. Alan Moore, last word before break. No, I want to thank Carl for for making that point because I completely agree that we don't we don't know the the circumstances in Ferguson. I thought I would give give a little gift to Carl for the day, um, and and uh, and I have this recollection and from before that although it's not escaped the notice of others that it's a predominantly white police force in a predominantly black community, although it's by no means 100% in either case, 
But my recollection is that Ferguson was having some trouble recruiting the, the best African-American candidates because it didn't pay as well. Right. And that the best African-American candidates Went were, to St. Louis were, County. Were, were going elsewhere. And and these guys were the, the sort of the, the best folks available. So, you know, that has to come into play. The other thing is, and I do resist this notion that that. You, if, if you just look at the at the at the ethnicity or race of a police force and then just draw judgments and assumptions, I'd like to know what the facts are, and I'd also like to give the benefit some benefit of the doubt to to people who are not of the predominant race that they might in fact still be able to be qualified, good effective police officers and not just have a blanket assumption that because they're the, a minority race, they can't be a good policeman. Just the same way I feel if there are African-American policemen in predominantly white areas that they can't know what they're doing and know how to know how to be a good police. If they're if if they're qualified and if they're properly trained, Amen. Then then more power to them. Amen. I agree with that. That being said, that's going to be the last word when we come back. We're going to talk about the politics of the XL pipeline. Can the XL pipeline save Mary Landry's Senate seat? That when we come back from Shelley's back room, 1331 F Street, in the heart of our native capital, Washington D.C. We'll be back in two minutes. Stay with us. Why would you want to? With a cigar menu like they have here, why would you even consider going smoke-free? Event pricing varies based on the time of the day of the week chosen for your event. For more information on private parties at Shelly's Back Room, go to www.shellysbackroom.com slash private dash party. Shelly's Back Room, the place to be, as Bob likes to say it. It's also the place for private parties.
Wow. Just when you thought that the debate stops off air? Nah. This is Backroom Politics Live from Shelley's Backroom, 1331 F Street, in the heart of our nation's capital, Washington, D.C. Uh, we're going to talk a little XL Pipeline uh, talk right now. We are awaiting a vote in the Senate uh, regarding the XL Pipeline and the future of the pipeline as being approved by the federal government. The question now becomes, Senator Mary Landrew, as early as, as late as this morning, was talking about she had the necessary 60 votes to get this thing passed through the Senate and made a big production about the fact that she has whipped these votes into shape and she can save the XL pipeline. However, big question. Many looked at it as a political maneuver by Mary Landrew that she feels that she might be in trouble and that this is a way to possibly save her Senate seat going to go to you. Bob Hines, does Mary Landrieu's actions today in affecting possibly the passage of the XL pipeline uh, referendum, does this save her Senate seat? I think most people realize that whether the Senate votes for it or not, the president will veto it. I don't think it will make a difference in the election in Louisiana. I think that the Republican congressman who uh, is, is, is running, and there was an independent in the race, and that's why uh, I think Ms. He went Land, to a runoff. I think the senator uh, beat the congressman by about a point, a point and a quarter, and I think the uh, and the, the, the conservative uh, uh, minority vote uh, was about 9%. I think 8% of that vote will go to the Republican candidate, and I think the Republican Congressman will become a new senator from Louisiana. Dan Lipner, big oil, big money down those parts. Does it save Mary Landrieu? Well, Mary Landrieu is the senator from big oil, and uh, she is doing her job for at least her financial constituency. Um, and as far as overall predicting uh, Louisiana politics, Louisiana's politics is, is, a, is a special brand. To say the least, a lot of Cajuns. A lot, a, a, a lot of Cajuns, <laughs> and and only in Louisiana could, could could you have the political line. And yes, this was actually uttered for those who do, who don't know this. Back when David Duke was on the on the ballot, uh, the vote for the crook is important. And David Duke was not the crook. The Democrat was the crook that time. And by the way, the Democrat won. Um, so, in, in in this case, the the getting the XL pipeline off of uh, off of the the, the political uh, radar radar as it is um, will help Mary Landrieu um, because yeah there are jobs in Louisiana and there are lots of jobs in Canada uh, that that the XL pipeline will that will promote but as far as everything else that everyone's talking about as far as the XL pipeline it, it, both sides are lying about it so that being said it, it the thing will be get built that the it will pass in the Senate. And and whether or not the president vetoes, that's now more uh, political jujitsu from this White House, which has mishandled politics over and over again, at least in the short term. So I'm not willing to predict whether or not the president vetoes, um, because it's been suggested he could very well veto, and then three months from now, when the final environmental review comes through, approve the pipeline, and I'll which would be you, insane. And I'll make you bet he waits until after the, the election on the 6th of November before he vetoes it. <laughs> Becca Kaufman. 
So it's interesting with the Keystone Pipeline is if we look what's happened in the House, um, Bill Cassidy has essentially taken the same language that is pre-approved in the Senate and renamed it the Cassidy Bill, and that's already gotten through the House. Yeah. So now the second it gets approved in the Senate, the House is going to send over the Cassidy Bill to the, to the Senate, so the, and they're going to be like, well, it's the same exact language. You have to approve this now, and all the credit's going to go to Bill Cassidy, which is genius. No. Wait, wait a minute, wait a minute, wait a minute, wait a minute, Carl Tubin. First of all, let's remember the senator's last name. Father's Father was a mayor, good mayor, mother's been a good mayor. That's debatable. She has, uh, she has uh, come back three times, or two or three times, to win the runoffs. Uh, where she always has been the underdog. I think when when you look at what she has done to to um, try to help her campaign, she's been very very um, um, out front. Uh, she's gotten I think more publicity than Sullivan has gotten, and uh, <clears throat> uh, I think that's all to the good. Whether she's going to win or not, uh, he seems to be. Ten points or plus of, of her, and uh, it's, it's going to have to be a really big comeback. But we'll see what happens. Alan Moore. Yeah, I think this one's pretty much done. Um, they they were neck and neck in round one, but most of the votes that, that didn't go to either one mm-hmm. went to a Tea Party Republican. Third, uh, there were several Republican is now actively. Uh, supporting Cassidy, um, I think the uh, the whose name is on the bill. What happened? The way this stuff works typically, if Cassidy's the lead sponsor in the House and Landra's the lead sponsor in the Senate, you take the House bill, you substitute the the new name, you and and then you can conference and fight out and probably call it the uh, the Landrew Cassidy bill, assuming it has the sixty votes, which it appears to have, and then it. All indications are the president will veto. I don't think it matters if he vetoes or not. There's a chance, I agree, that he hasn't said, I will veto. What they have said is the president's likely to veto. So it's a little bit short of that that, uh, that unequivocal. Does the Senate, have, an, does the Senate have enough votes possibly after the new Congress? Well, to, to override a presidential veto, I don't think so. Um, but that remains to be seen. I think this is just the president playing this one out as as far as uh, as far as he can. Um but seventy percent of the American people want this thing. Dan says there's no jobs. There are in fact it takes about two years to build this thing and it estimate estimated about twenty thousand jobs, construction jobs for each of two years, which is why the unions care so much about it. Um, and why it's so complicated for uh, for some of these uh, for for a, a whole number of Democrats. Um, after that, it's a handful of jobs because pipelines crisscross this country, and they don't have lots of staff people. Uh, uh, but it does bring uh, it's a a quicker trip oil. It's safer than the rails. It comes down to Louisiana, it gets refined. It's really interesting because the president has said some things about what's going to happen to this oil, which are in 100% direct conflict with what his (laughs) Department of Energy is saying. Um, 
And uh, just one of those little uh, Washington Nuances. anomalies. Yep. Carl Tubin. You know, even if the bill goes through, even if the president signs the bill, two states, um, South Dakota, I think Nebraska, has to go through those two states. The Indian, the Indians' uh, reservation in South Dakota said, over my dead body, they quote treaties from 1883 and other treaties that uh, they have control over these lands and this can't be done. In Nebraska, there's another situation again, uh, which which means they have possibly have to be voted in one or two of the states. Dan Lipner, I think, going into Carl's point, it kind of goes back to how terrible this White House is at handling politics. There are other ways to have dealt with the Keystone Pipeline, if you are against it, and still wrap your arms around other constituencies that we theoretically care about. Nebraska is the chief example. There's actually a not insignificant groundwater issue in Nebraska, and Nebraska farmers actually care about this an awful lot. And hypothetically, in the world of other Senate seats that we didn't need to lose, if the president spent the time talking about farmers, even though the XL pipeline has nothing to do with Iowa, maybe Bruce Braley could have gained a little bit of goodwill back after he said just another farmer as being head of the Judiciary Committee. There are other ways to handle politics. This White House simply does not see the entire field of issues. It gets very narrow, very fast, and is incapable. But it, beyond but Dan, that. let the record show that I agree with Dan. Wow. And I do, too. Holy crap. <laughs> it's bizarro world here in Shelley's back room. But it's easy. Yeah, Dan, but Dan when you when you look when you look at a time. Yeah, no kidding. When you look at a time when the job market right now is still very fragile, the numbers are going up and down, depending on, you know, what month you look at it. Uh, at a time when this president is talking about energy independence, here's an opportunity for the White House and the president to take claim and stake victory in getting something that will not only create high-paying technical jobs, but also at the same time uh, create energy independence. Even Democrats admit that. Why is this such heartburn for a president that's looking for a positive message on both fronts? Well, <laughs> Talking about it being energy independence and actually being energy independence are two entirely different things. Um, the fact of the matter is this White House has not talked about its successes. We are the closest to energy independence, and we're actually talking about being an, a net been. oil exporter for the first time in close to a century in this country. But do these but this, but this pipeline for this, talk about it. But this, this pipeline, pipeline has hold on, hold it. on. This pipeline this pipeline would force the major petrochemical com uh, companies in this country to build and or refurbish new refineries on the Gulf Coast, create them the larger capacity to refine crude oil into products that we want to export now for the first time. It seems to me that this is a no-brainer for the White House. Let, let, well, let's point out one thing before we talk about energy independence. The fact that it's a no-brainer? This is foreign oil. This is Canadian oil. These are not, this is but not let's be clear. But let's, Yeah, but let's be clear, though. Let's be clear. Canada has always been our largest source of imported oil for decades. 
Nobody talks about that. Every time you talk about imported oil, you're agreeing with me. I, 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 no, 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 no. But even the Canadians will say that the oil that we're putting down here isn't necessarily destined for the American market. We have a surplus of capabilities right now to create our own energy independence. This is for export, and according to all statistics, both Democrat, Republican, Canadian, and American, this pipeline creates energy independence for America, bar none. You just said two things in the same sentence. It has. It is not. It is not for domestic consumption. Now, what, what is could, also what, what is it, also agreed. The, the Balkan oil. Excuse me, not the Balkan oil. Excuse me. The, the tar sands oil is dirtier oil. As far as if you actually, if if you actually are going the global warming route, at, that it, it produces, I believe, thirteen percent more. Uh, uh, percent more uh, uh, carbon 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 for the atmosphere producing and refining this oil. So there is an argument there, and saying that this does anything else for independent energy independence just simply isn't so. It's the global market, and and the global market, which by the way is oversaturated right now because there's an economic slowdown going on in both Europe and Asia, which is part of the reason. While our production and the Saudi production are part of that, the fact that there's less demand in other places in the world, the, the energy market is a global market. It so it, 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 the, the, the prices and these other issues, Alan's point about jobs and the short-term jobs, yes, there is something there. But the, the a high-end estimate of 50 long-term jobs being created with the pipeline still stands. So this is a short-term political issue that the, the – the pipeline will likely get built regardless. There are already plenty of other pipelines that don't go to this particular area in Canada to, to bring the oil through. It has nothing to do with anything more substantive. It is a, it, it is a political issue that's been created Bob in Hines. football. Look at it long term. How long have we been pumping oil out of Pennsylvania, Ohio, a whole lot of other places? Oklahoma, Texas, Oklahoma. Louisiana. All over the place. And some of those some of those places are going to dry out. 25 years from now, we're going to love the fact that we've got these oils from Canada coming down and we can use it ourselves. Long term, it's a very good safety valve. And I think it's a wonderful idea to do it. The correct answer is it creates energy independence, it creates jobs, and oh, by the way, the API said so. <laughs> anyway, that being said, now it's time for my favorite part of the show. Say what the API is. Don't American just, Petroleum Institute, yeah. of course. Shocking. Wow! <laughs> but I believe them. Not the Canadians. Not the Canadians, the American Petroleum Institute, yeah. damn you. So, that being said, it's now time for my, for my favorite part of the show. It's time for Tell Me a Story. We talk about news, innuendo stories that sometimes we break inside and outside the beltway. Bob Hines, tell me a story. Uh, one of the hidden interests in the uh, recent election was the election of a number of governors. One of them, I think, has uh, not been uh, on the front lines as far as people thinking about it. John Kasich. Four years ago, defeated a sitting Democratic governor who had run Ohio into an $8 billion deficit in four years. He cleaned it up in four years. He won election last uh, week. He, had a, he won 62% of the vote. 
He's a very interesting guy. He's a he's not a Tea Party guy. He's a traditional Midwestern Republican. Ohio has a lot of votes in the uh, presidential election in the in the Electoral College. Are you saying he's possible 2016? What I'm saying is nobody has ever mentioned his name, but it, he's a name that needs to be thought about. Are we going to hear more about John Kasich in the next two years? I would be surprised. I would be surprised if we didn't. People are talking about him. Yeah, I'd be surprised if I did. Carl Tubin, tell me a story. Well, I'm not sure which one to tell. <laughs> next. Next. <laughs> yep, that's the code word. Next. The story I'll tell is there was an article in the Baltimore Sun uh, about Hillary Clinton. And it talked about her, her contacts with uh, Wall Street and, and uh, Goldman Sachs and this and that and the other. And, and I read it and I said, well, this is nothing new. And then I looked at and it was you know, a negative article. Then I looked at who wrote it. It was a former governor of Maryland who wrote the article. There we go. Good story. Denise Kraft, tell me a story. Well, we, there's an interesting story coming out about the Obama administration today talking about hostage policy. And I encourage Americans to Google it, hostage policy in Obama administration, because traditionally the policy, regardless of whether it's been a Democrat or a Republican administration, is that we do not negotiate with with hostages, with, you know, with those who have taken hostages. And I think you should be watching this, because if we do change our policy, that will significantly impact the way in which we deal with terrorists. I mean, I, I grew up in an era where Terry Wade was held hostage for eight years because we refused to negotiate. And if we change this, that will be a game changer in the way in which we respond to ISIS. So keep watching this, because this is not a situation that's going to go away. Becca Kaufman, tell me a story. Rand Paul did an interview on the Bill Maher show recently, and it was political brilliance, and I encourage everyone to go and watch it if they haven't. He talked about things like criminal justice reform and fiscal conservatism, but the best thing that he talked about was deregulating alternative fuels, which I think for conservatives is a brilliant way to market our stance on energy policy. Go watch it if you haven't. All right. Alan Moore, tell me a story. Yeah. Um, House Democratic leader Nancy Pelosi's had a really bad month, but uh, but she did get elect, reelected to her leadership post unanimously, um, uh, which uh, <laughs> which is good news for Republicans, I think, because she has been a really great whipping person um, for uh, for for Republicans. She she got very huffy. Uh, in, in a, at a press briefing, um, I think misunderstood a question and came back and accused the press of, of sexism. Um, and and it, it's particular. There's a great irony there. This great defender of women and women's rights, um, and both politically and inside the house. And she, she has done some great stuff. Don't get me wrong, but. But at the same time that was happening, a, a Democratic representative from Illinois, a woman named Tammy Duckworth, a double amputee from the Iraq War, who is in her last month of pregnancy, requested of the Democratic caucus whether she could participate via proxy. Many House committees and Senate committees allow proxy voting. Neither the House nor the Senate allows it, but a lot of committees do. What was the caucus's response? Nope, 
we can't go down that road and start making decisions like this. So how ironic that the great defenders of women, uh, uh, of, of, of federal policy for, for, for sick leave and maternal health leave could not find a way to allow this woman to vote in the caucus for leadership um, during her the last stages of her pregnancy when she's been ordered Nancy, to stay home. Nancy Pelosi's war on women. Love it. Love it. Dan Lipner, tell me a story. Uh, well, I was initially going to go with uh, the topic that Rebecca has stolen, because Rand Paul is continuing to prove to be a very interesting politician. Uh, both Republican and Democratic friends alike uh, challenged me when I said, I pay attention to this guy. He's doing some interesting stuff and saying some interesting things. But instead, I'm going to go with my somewhat comedic fallback, which is uh, we can all sing along with going to the chapel, excuse me, going to prison, we're going to get married. That's right. <laughs> Charles Manson. Um, the 80-year-old Charles Manson with the swastika tattooed on his forehead has actually found a mate. A, a 26-year-old woman uh, who goes by, by the name of Star, otherwise known as Elaine Booten, um, has decided she would like to marry Charles Manson. Great. Okay. <laughs> I heard further. She would like to marry Charles Manson. She's been out there for 10 years. And she wants, if she marries him, they can then show her all the evidence and all about the case. And she wants to show that he's innocent. Let the circus begin. Yeah, great. Poor, poor soul. Yeah, no kidding. Yeah, you sure you want to do that, Charlie? Jesus. Uh, with that being said, I, I, we do have to end on, on a somewhat somber note. Uh, we didn't talk about it today because the information is still coming in. But earlier today. In, uh, in Israel was a horrific attack which cost the lives of latest breaking news, five people in uh, three American rabbis, two Israeli nationals in, uh, in Israel. First of all, our thoughts and our prayers go out to uh, the, the Israelis, our Israeli friends, and to, the, and to the families and friends of the victims. This is a horrible, horrible attack. And I will tell you right now, Benjamin Netanyahu, if you think you've poked a sleeping bear, go into a synagogue with hatchets and knives and start murdering Jewish holy people. If you think that this is going to go undone, guess again. We're going to talk about that in length next week as we get more details in. But hate to end on a sober note, but on behalf of Bob Hines, Carl Tuvin, Denise Krepp, Becca Kaufman, Alan Moore, Dan Lipner, I'm your host and moderator, Justin Russell. We will be back in two weeks. Next week is, uh, is uh, Thanksgiving. Several of us will be on the road. We'll have a best of show, but we will be back live first week in December, uh, December 2nd, where we will be here at Shelley's Back Room, 1331 F Street, in the heart of our nation's capital, Washington, D.C., Bob? The only place to be. Absolutely. You can follow us on the web at www.backroompolitik.org. You can download us on iTunes and Beyond Pod Radio. You can also follow us on the Twitter, at Backroom Politic, or you can email me your questions, concerns, complaints, or just general love for me, Justin, Justin <laughs> at backroompolitics.org. We'll see you in two weeks, America. Happy Thanksgiving to you and yours. Take care. Bye-bye.